Welcome to the Defense and Airspace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagam Radian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Russia's war on Ukraine has entered its second month as President Biden warns the world to prepare for a long battle against Vladimir Putin's aggression while Moscow ramps up its deception game, claiming its war aims are limited to Donetsk and Luhansk as it expands strikes across the country and into Western Ukraine. Energy prices have stabilized, but investors are grappling with the implications of a long sanctions regime that is likely to get worse as Western companies have assets trapped in Russia. Boeing shares fell after a six-year-old 737-800 operated by China Eastern Airways literally plunged from the sky, killing all 132 aboard. The jet was cruising at some 30,000 feet en route from Kunming to Guangzhou when it crashed near uh, Wuzhou. Uh, Beijing has grounded similar type jets. Newer, the newer version of the 737, the MAX, remains grounded in China in the wake of two deadly accidents that grounded the global MAX fleet between March 2019 and November 2020. The company also said its MAX 10 variant is behind schedule certification-wise. Investors are waiting on the Biden administration's 2023 defense spending request that is to be transmitted to Congress tomorrow morning, and infections of the BA.2 variant of Omicron are rising. But as China locks down, the rest of the world is increasingly getting back to normal. To date, COVID has killed at least 976,000 Americans and more than 6.1 million worldwide. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. It's always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. Great to be here, Vago, as always. Thanks. Great to have all of you uh, back, indeed. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our two uh, new weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. And the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, welcome back. Uh, Ron, how did the Defense and Aerospace Group uh, perform this week and what's on investors' minds, especially in the wake of the emergency NATO summit, uh, the EU heads of state meeting, which uh, Biden participated in, uh, and the G7? Obviously, uh, the American president wants more sanctions against Russia and has pledged to help uh, Europe wean itself off of uh, Russian energy. Uh, but it looks like that's going to cause uh, significant challenges, right? Some talk in Germany, um, considering uh, rationing for, for fuel and, and the like, especially uh, given that this transition is likely to take more time uh, than not. What's on investors' minds? Yes, yeah, so if you look at the performance of uh, you know the market for the week, the S&P was up about 2%. Um, the defense stocks you know, broadly did a bit better than that. Isabel Weather, Northrop Grumman was up about 5% on the week. Uh, Boeing traded largely in line with the market. Uh, some of the services uh, providers were a little bit below that. Uh, and then kind of you know, Raytheon Technologies split the difference, be it that it's kind of a play on both. Um, oil, uh, WTI was about $114, at least at the end of the week, about $114 a barrel. Uh, Brent, about $120. So you know, oil pulled back a little bit, then started going the other direction. So we're kind of up in this upward trend uh, in oil. 
Uh, I think one of the things that's on uh, investors' minds for sure is is inflation. Uh, you know, the German producer price index uh, year on year came out uh, last week and it was up uh, almost 26%, 25.9% year on year. Um, if you look at just natural gas prices in Europe based on forward contracts uh, priced in the Netherlands, uh, natural gas is uh, up almost 45% off of where it was in mid-February before all this started. Uh, so the, the, the impact of inflation, what that means for um, you know, fuel prices, interest rates, so on and so forth, I think are what are really on top of investors' minds. Um, it leaked out into the market that you know, the, the ask for, you know, for the DOD budget will be about $773 billion. I think you know, given where you, you saw the defense stocks in the week, um, you know, the market received that positively. Uh, we'll learn more details, obviously, uh, uh, this week when, when the numbers get um, get sent to Congress. But I think that was on investors' minds. And then something I think we'll talk about probably a little bit later is uh, you know, the crash of the, uh, the 737-800 in China uh, was, was also on investors' minds. Uh, and I want to uh, get to that uh, in a little bit. And later in the program, we'll take a deeper dive into defense spending, uh, in part because we've been talking about this uh, $773 billion number uh, for uh, some time, as well as the likelihood that Congress uh, is likely to up that number until, or, you know, into the $813 billion neighborhood, which is which is a pretty good neighborhood, unless you consider that inflation is actually eating away uh, at, at a lot of the buying power the department has. Um, Sash, let me go to you. What are the defense and aerospace outcomes uh, from you know the NATO summit, the G7, uh, the EU heads of state meeting. I mean, it's unusual for an American president to participate in those. Um, and and obviously a little bit of blowback on the president having said, "quote For God's sakes, this man can't remain in power." Speaking of Vladimir Putin, I think he was expressing a sentiment all of us uh, would would express that this crisis sadly is going to continue as long as this man right. And and then we will face another crisis. Uh, after this, uh, given, you know, he's made his sort of long-term goals, you know, that we have maybe more of a Russia problem than, a, excuse me, we have more of a Putin problem than a Russia problem. But but take a, give us the sort of the key aerospace and defense takeaways from the week. Yeah, okay. Uh, I mean, most of the European aeros- also the European defense stocks ended the week at pretty much all-time highs. I mean, Rheinmetall, which in February was trading at 90 euros, ended the week at 202 euros, up 125%. That shows you quite what a turnaround in uh, the fortunes of the defence stocks we've seen. But, you know, even BA Systems, which um, is clearly, a, you know, a much, uh, you know, arguably broader-based, um, uh, a much broader exposure, particularly to the US defence budget. BA Systems was trading before the crisis at, under 600 euros most oh, sorry, pence most times, uh, it's now at 750. Um, so it was a very strong week for the defence sector, and that reflected the, I wouldn't say it reflected the outcomes of the NATO summit, but it reflected the fact that nothing went wrong at the NATO summit. Normally, NATO summits are occasions where uh, the President of the United States and his team come and berate Europeans for not spending enough. You know, that's all, for as long as I can remember, that's been the starting point for any NATO summit. And actually, this did not degenerate into that, partly because Europeans are just starting to spend. Uh, and in the case of Germany, spending, you know, money like water, um, but also because there's just rather more important things than worrying about percentages of GDP. Uh, actually, you know, we're trying to we're trying to focus on how to face a, a an armed and dangerous opponent who is in some cases, only a few tens or uh, hundred kilometers away from uh, NATO members' borders. Um, and so a, a lot of the focus of the NATO summit was on 
um, I think keeping keeping the unanimity of the NATO nations, and in that it was incredibly successful. There was a lot of talk about providing aids to the Ukraine to deal with chemical, biological, and radiological uh, threats. That doesn't have a particular effect on on the the major quoted companies because that tends to be, you know, suits, respirators, decontamination equipment, which is actually remote. Uh, you know. Overall, very, very low-tech stuff, but the volumes the Ukrainians might need will, will be very high. But that was the single biggest headline coming out of this. But it's very apparent that European nations and the US are pouring immense quantities of arms into, into Ukraine. And, you know, by and large, it's actually working. It's having an effect. The Russian offence in most areas has been blunted, and in some areas... I, I mean, you know, the headlines say the Russians are being pushed back. Actually, I think what's happening is that they are generally withdrawing to try to, to straighten their lines out and, tr- and try to reduce forces that are overextended. Um, but, you know, the Ukrainians are, are filling that gap. Um, as for President Biden's comments, you know, hurrah, fantastic. We, any sentient human being in the West would agree with that. It's clearly high risk for the President of the United States to, you know, to imply that uh, another head of state should be overthrown. But it's, you know, it's complete common sense, isn't it? Um, And I think what that shows is we're not going to go back to the status quo anytime soon. It's not going to be that in two months, three months, you know, we're going to be back to Russia being a slightly aggressive, but otherwise perfectly reasonable trading partner and we can buy, sell, trade, up, down, whatever with them. Uh, This is going to take a long time to sort out, potentially. And um, the only time that we will get complete resolution is going to be when when Putin leaves, steps down, whatever. Uh, And uh, so, you know, prepare for the long haul in terms of Russia's relationship with the West. It certainly is going to be interesting how everybody adapts uh, to this. Uh, let me just ask you one follow-up and, and then want to go to Richard for, for his thoughts. Do folks there fully appreciate the magnitude of this shift and the costs and the sacrifices that are going to be required to achieve it? I mean, the Germans already are talking, uh, Sash, as you know, about rationing diesel um, and you know whether or not that energy, you know whether or not we'll have to go through one more winter. Obviously, there's a big deal uh, that was inked between the United States and the EU for gas. The United States is a net exporter uh, of energy as, as well as uh, liquefied natural gas. Uh, there's a deal in the offing with Qatar. Um, which is a major supplier. The United States has been actively engaged in brokering that. The Saudis look like they're going to increase production as well. I mean, what what do these trends sort of tell us? And then there are the assets potentially lost, right? I mean, Renault has a factory. I mean, a lot of people have factories. McDonald's has many franchises uh, in the country, right? I mean, is there sort of a sense on what all of that means yet? Has it sunk in and how are investors responding to the totality of this from aerospace to everything else? It's not remotely sunk in. Um, and that's one of the reasons actually why the civil aerospace stocks have held up okay. I mean, Airbus, 100 and, uh, 107 euros, you know, peaked at just under 120. If Russia is cut off from the West, and if, and this is uh, the, sec- the second one is a big if, uh, supplies of Russian titanium, um, both uh, billet and forged, are cut off to Airbus and Boeing as a consequence, then both of the OEMs have got massive problems. And they're not going to be hitting their production forecasts anytime soon because switching uh, switching capacity for big forgings takes several years minimum. So, uh, you know, more broadly, uh, I, I you know I'm, I'm interested that the Germans are talking about 
uh, rationing. Nobody is, you know, that hasn't cut through to other European countries. Uh, it probably should do. Uh, you know, uh, petrol prices are, are up, but nobody's talking about rationing at the moment. So, yeah, you know, we're, we're going to have sec- several aftershocks in this whole process because bad news doesn't, um, uh, you know, politicians don't want to talk about the bad news quite as much as uh, as the good. And they'll be very reluctant, I think, to, to steal people uh, to you know, cut back on gas use, even though the weather's getting better. Um, R- Richard, what are uh, some of the storylines story and themes that uh, struck you uh, both uh, during the summits afterwards and over the course of the week that you think were sort of most interesting and comment worthy? Yeah, you know, I mean, I can't agree more with Sash. It seems that there's an enormous shift that's taken place, which has really accelerated over the past week. It's really starting to sink in, but I also agree that it hasn't really sunk in. I mean, you know, this a month ago we were talking, or even weeks ago, it was like, all right, how do we keep Ukraine defended? How do we keep this from going horribly wrong? Now it looks like the objectives and goals are far more serious. And of course that was highlighted by what uh, President Biden said. Now to me, this is one of those fascinating moments in time um, because frankly, you look at what happened to the defense sector um, after the Cold War, after 1991, um, after Gulf War One, and it, it shrank. Obviously you've had an enormous run of mergers and acquisitions creating pretty much the defense sector we have today. And of course, barriers to entry stayed extremely high. You know, I mean, look back at what's been created, uh, General Atomics, uh, <laughs> everything else is pretty much just a shrunken, merged uh, manifestation of what we had during the Cold War. So it's going to take some time to spool up. That's happening in a context of inflation, as Ron mentioned. So you've got inflation plus the additional costs associated with gearing up new capabilities. And you look at all the new programs that are being spooled up, both in the black world and in the open world. My goodness, it's, it's, it's a, a recipe for inflation. It's a recipe for growth, but it's also a recipe for the kind of investments, the kind of long-term costs that we need to cope with this very different strategic environment. So it's been obviously a very strange month culminating I think in a very strange week, it might get stranger even still. And it's unlike Gulf War One, it's not going to be resolved to everyone's satisfaction where everyone goes home and decided that we can get on with their holiday from history. This to me is just a fascinating moment in time. Um, and, and your uh, thoughts, because I know I can't uh, ask uh, Ron this question, but um, your sense on the president's comments, right? I mean, the White House came in right after that, said the United States is not arguing for regime change, uh, right? The Secretary of State said the president was accept- expressing a, a sentiment uh, that uh, this problem will continue and, and highlights the challenge of the problem that we face, but that the ultimate decision is up to the Russian people. Um, you know, what, what was your sense uh, about this? Because it seems like all the, you know, all the, muddled thinking that got us into this mess seems always to resurface, even when we're making positive progress to sort of say, hey, look, we we have to call these autocrats out. We've been giving them the money with which they've built capabilities that they now intend to use against us. Um, 
you know, which I think people have been warning about for some time. But what was what was your sense of of that comment? And then we can get back to the market based discussion. But I'm interested because you're more than just a uh, market analyst. Oh, I appreciate that. And uh, I'd like to echo Sasha's comments. Hurrah. That's all you can say. Uh, you know, he had the, the nerve to call it for what it is. And, you know, there's been this soft peddling of the strategic challenge for some time now. You know, most recently, we had a president who was the first one in history to question Article 5 of NATO and indeed the existence of NATO. Now we have a president who's saying, all right, no, <laughs> this is a major strategic challenge. It's clearly shown up in a very unpleasant and difficult way. We have to deal with it. And frankly, there's no end save victory. Now, that might not mean regime change. That means the elimination of this as a direct threat to the Western alliance. I'm glad he said it. Uh, I w- wish they wouldn't be trying to dial it back. Uh, but from a national security perspective, it's exactly accurate. Um, Ron, let me uh, bring you into the conversation. I mean, the president, I mean, it's it's astonishing that everybody's fin- focused on those nine words and apparently didn't listen to what was an exceptionally powerful. Uh, and I think, you know, to, to, to take a, uh, you know, to take a phrase from Richard, a defining statement about how democracies must stand up to autocracies and we have to move away from that sort of business as usual uh, mindset. You talk to a lot of uh, savvy investors, some maybe not as savvy. Uh, obviously, these comments were not were aimed at well beyond Russia, uh, but also to China. Um, you know, we talk about the we've been talking about the decoupling of trade now for the last uh, couple of years on this program. Um, you know, any how are investors looking at this, and and what are the investors that are looking beyond um, Russia telling you about where they think? this trend is going to take world markets in the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one way to, to, to answer that is a, is a question that I've gotten, uh, and I'm certain Sasha's gotten it too, that, you know, what if everything were to be resolved next month? Would we see the defense stocks pull back to where they were before? Would we see defense budget talk go back to where it was before? And, and I think the consensus view is actually no that you know, the horses are out of the barn, the genie's out of the bottle, you know, whatever cliche you want to use, but, but things really fundamentally changed and that you know, Putin isn't the only potential bad actor out there, that there's other bad actors, um, some in the Pacific Rim, some shooting off missiles kind of as we speak, uh, and, that, and that, 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 that's the situation we're in now. And, and that's changed, I think, meaningfully the sentiment around you know, embed sitting in defense. Um, we've talked about this a little bit, but you know what defense and ESG investing means, particularly in Europe, but also the defense sector kind of kind of writ large. You know, the defense sector to some extent, when you think about uh, the recovery from COVID, it was a little bit of a backwater because you know, there was fears that defense budgets would go down. It wasn't really part of reopening like many of the service industries or our commercial aerospace. But all that's changed. So I think the investor view is looking more longer term and is looking at this potentially really in the right way that this really was was a change. One of the things I I do worry about, um, and I'd be interested to hear what Sasha has to say about this, is in conversations I've had with my colleagues in Europe, the situation in Europe in terms of what's going to happen, like you mentioned about rationing, inflation, what that's going to do to the economies in Europe. I don't think that's fully appreciated on this side of the Atlantic and what 
what that broadly means, that there could be some demand destruction in Europe, um, and maybe it even comes back to the US, but I don't think that's fully appreciated here. And then the second thing, and I kind of heard this through you know, the grapevine, when you look at the aerospace OEs, what I've heard is it seems like some of them are counting on the Russians to be back in the titanium game at some point here down the road, that you know, the industry isn't sold yet on moving its supply chains away from Russia. Uh, and, and I find that as a worrisome point because I actually don't know if that's, a, I mean, my sense is that's probably not a good strategy, but, but, but who knows? Um, Sash, take it away. Same, same I, question I, as well as uh, Ron's question. I, I, I agree with Ron. I, I don't think the aerospace OEs are being at all realistic. I think they are whistling past the graveyard on this one. Um, uh, it may well be that they are working in the background at looking at resourcing. And one of the advantages of where we are in the overall civil aerospace cycle, you know, just coming out of COVID, way below peak uh, historic production levels, is that there may be more Western capacity available than there would have been three years ago. But when it comes to very, very high-end um, forgings in particular, titanium forgings, the number of um, large presses that can do those is fingers of one hand stuff around the world and the biggest and the best were owned by v uh, VSMPO. Um, and requalifying suppliers, even if you're coming from a VSMPO um, uh, supply to uh, you know, a, a major US supplier, the, the process of requalification, the documentation involved is measured in many quarters. It's not a couple of months, you know, bash out one, uh, one, one part and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll check it for dimensions and then you can, you can just turn on supply caps. No way, it doesn't, you know, it's a much more complex process than that. So I think the, the, the civil OEMs are, uh, you know, their, their public face is, um, is not credible, frankly. Um, as far as, you know, as, as far as rationing is concerned, it, it, you know, it, I mean, Ron, Ron's right. Politicians don't want to talk about rationing yet. I think there is a hope that um, overall, uh, particularly petroleum and diesel, diesel is actually the real um, uh, choke point here in, in Europe. There's a short, much bigger shortage of diesel than petrol, you know, as a, as a, a, a petroleum grade. Uh, and I think the hope is that supplies can be turned on in the Middle East um, uh, in particular, uh, you know, quickly enough to avoid the problem is that as economies recover, um, demand for diesel and, and petrol is going up faster than uh, demand for heating oil is going down as the as the weather improves. Uh, and that's a so yeah, inflation is. I mean, Bank of England's already said you know previously their forecast for inflation was about seven and a half percent for this year. It's going to blow through that. It's going to be closer to ten percent, um, and that's going to cause you know that's going to cause a lot of stress. If you look at also the issues of shortage of wheat as a result of Ukraine probably not planting very much this year and uh, Russia exporting less than it otherwise would have done. I worry about the whole of the Middle East, particularly North Africa, uh, but also to some extent the Indian subcontinent because they are massive importers of wheat. And it tends to be shortages of bread that cause civil unrest. It's really that simple. So I think the, you know, the, the, the second order contagion issues are the ones that probably will rear very ugly heads in the autumn. Richard, uh, your sense on on where we are and and where we're going, uh, and the you know not not just from a European perspective, 
But again, on, on the China trade issue that you and I actually have been talking about for some 20 plus years now. Xi Jinping and the PRC leadership need to make a decision. And that will determine what the trade, what a trade deal looks like if there is a trade deal. Um, you know, I mean, it's quite possible that they simply decide, ah, you know, we, our alliance with Putin's Russia is something to be defended. We have so much in common, a shared sense of disgruntlement and a need to protect our societies against the forces of globalization in the outside world. Or it's possible to go in the other direction and say, decoupling is for losers. Let's not do this. Let's try to return to the status quo. And I think the ball is very much in their court. Uh, unfortunately, you know, just as defense companies are doing better and better, and we'll keep doing better and better, the commercial side of the house is in danger of taking another blow. Because, of course, getting Russia out of the export market doesn't matter very much. Getting hundreds of jets out of the mix, that hurts, but not catastrophic. But if decoupling with China becomes, you know, a fact of life, that is an absolute body blow to commercial aerospace. So I think there's a lot riding on this, of course. And and um, what about substitution? As as Sash sort of said, this isn't an easy thing. Uh, you and I were uh, at an event, uh, and it was utterly lovely. And the issue of uh, titanium uh, came up, uh, and um, you know there were a lot of folks who are looking to Canada. Uh, whether it's for fertilizer and a whole bunch of other things, because Canada does have actually quite a lot of natural resources. The question is getting the certification, for example, of stampings and castings and the like. Um, how, how, long, how long does it take to substitute that which Russia produces? Yeah, you know, the sponge, the, the, raw the, uh, the sponge, the raw material is, you know, available. That is to say, there's a, already significant inventories, you know, the most titanium rich, commercial products or the wide body jets that simply aren't in demand very much. And in the case of the 787, of course, there's a lot in inventory to the jets themselves, not just the, but when it comes to castings and forgings, yeah, that's going to take years. And of course it will take a, some kind of, I don't know how you, you communicate to the mills out there that they should make this investment because of course it's I, I should say that you know the castings and forgings houses it's it's one thing for Helmet or whoever else to say all right there's a requirement for us to ramp up but you know could be that russia and company come back online in a year or two how do you come up with some kind of public private partnership or some kind of guarantee that if they make these big investments in casting and forging capacity that it won't be for not in a few years and they'll be stuck with a lot of idle plant i don't know how that gets done. But either way, it's going to take years. Ron, is there any uh, last thought uh, you want to add uh, before uh, we move on to the question of the 737, uh, the the very sad news of the 737 crash in, in China, as well as MAX 10 certification delays? Yeah, I mean, the, the one point, <clears throat> excuse me, I would add to, to Richard's point is um, how, how you do it is you, the OEs have to guarantee um, the producers so who, who could, you know, do the work of the SMPO in the U.S.? Well, Halmet could. Precision fast cast parts could. Um, there's other forging facilities. The OEs and, and both, you know, airframe and engine have to be willing to say, okay, um, we'll give you a contract for 10 years or whatever the time frame is to make it, you know, economically uh, feasible 
for the companies to make the decisions to certify those facilities and, and open it up because nobody's going to want to do it if they can't get some guarantee for a volume of work that makes sense for them to do it. Uh, three, three, two, one. And a quick word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. I want to shift to the topic of the 737 uh, now. Uh, obviously, a, a very deadly crash killed 132. Uh, we don't know what happened. Radar data shows uh, the airplane dropped about 1,000 feet uh, from its cruising altitude, recovered briefly, and then started uh, what was effectively a 25,000-foot uh, plunge. Uh, the last seconds of which were terrifyingly caught um, on video, unfortunately. Uh, folks heard a loud bang um, before uh, when the airplane was uh, airborne. And then we've got the MAX 10 certification issue. Ron, walk us through what we know, what we think we know, what we fear, what we shouldn't fear, right, as we go into this, uh, go into this period. Because the, the plane is still, the, the MAX is not, I mean, obviously this was a next generation jet, but the, China has not recertified the MAX yet, right? So anyway, walk us through what all this means. Yeah, on one hand, uh, the connection between um, the ill-fated 800 and, and the MAX, they're, they're unrelated issues in a sense, right? They're different machines. Um, there's lots of NGs flying around the world um, safely uh, with a very safe history. Um, <clears throat> Although it's, it's hard to speculate what happened, right? So I'm, I'm not even going to go there. But um, the, air, <clears throat> the investigators will put it together and we'll get a picture, right? They know where the airplane is. They found the black boxes. They'll, they'll piece it together and we'll learn what happened. Um, on the other hand, maybe the challenge for Boeing just becomes an issue of a maybe branding in China. That's, that's one issue. Two, um, and we've talked about this before, Boeing has become clearly uh, a pawn in the, the back and forth uh, between the US and China. Uh, and this you know, tragic event probably feeds that fire, right? So does you know, this on some, in some manner, does this become politicized and, and, and then therefore challenge um, the max going back in the service in China? I don't know, but those are worries that people have. And, they're, they're, they're probably rational worries, and we just won't know until more of this plays out over time and, and how, it, how it gets handled. On the, on the MAX 10, it's, it's a little more straightforward. Um, on the MAX 10, my understanding is you have five years to certify an airplane. Um, and in that five years, the certification rules can change, sort of like building codes. So you have five years to build a building, and if the building code changes in that five years and you don't finish the building in five years, you got to go back and build the building to the new code. That's my understanding what's confronting Boeing right now with the MAX 10, that if they don't get it certified by the end of the year, anything that's changed in the, in the, in the certification framework that they were starting certification with, they would have to go back and certify to those changes unless they were given some form of dispensation from Congress. In the current political environment, I don't know if they could get that dispensation from Congress or not. Maybe they could, if they could, no problem. If they don't, then they'd have to go back and do more work, which would push the certification of the MAX 10 out, who knows, by another maybe six to nine months beyond the end of the year. So you're talking about certification that wouldn't happen until the end of next year, as opposed to the end of this year. Um, so there's some variables there, but it's a little more clean cut in terms of what 
happens with the Max 10. Sash, uh, your sense on what all of this uh, means uh, and then the Max 10 issue as well and, and how that plays into uh, the narrative that clearly Boeing is, is trying to uh, escape. And we should put you know, we should let everybody know, right? We have no idea what happened. We don't know whether this was an act of terrorism, whether it was a mechanical failure uh, or, or, or what happened, right? And we won't know until we know, uh, as, as the expression goes. Yeah, I, mean, I don't have a great deal uh, to add to what Ron said. I mean, I agree with, with everything there. I mean, the horrible, you know, laws of statistics are that the 737 uh, NG is the second uh, highest volume commercial aircraft program ever produced after the A320 family. So it's, you know, it's get, it and the A320 are going to be the aircraft that are you're most likely to see um, having accidents because there are thousands of them around there. I don't think there's anything else we can say, say now, except that um, the Chinese are very, very good at politicizing things if and when they want to. Um, they have no need for extra, a lot of extra aircraft at the moment. Shanghai is just shut down for COVID restrictions again, um, as we're recording. Um, uh, it's very, very, you know, if I were Boeing, I would be bending over backwards to help the accident investigation. I mean, even more than usual, because you really want the Chinese on your side uh, at, at this stage, because otherwise there goes 30% of your market. Um, Max 10, uh, you know, we, we've th these certification issues are becoming bigger and bigger. And I think it's going to be a problem going to be a problem for Airbus, frankly. You know, the A350 freighter uh, is going to be, a, you know, pretty much an all-new design. I don't think that is going to be easy to certificate at all. Um, and, uh, you know, as far as Max 10 is concerned, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a great aircraft anyway. It's certainly not competitive head-on against the A321neo. Um, the time it's taking to certificate is uh, inconvenient because it means that Boeing isn't really... Uh, fully in the market uh, with it. And I think that if, as a consequence, it ends up with its commercial performance in any way undermined, that just, that does not help Boeing's cause in the narrowbody market. We've all, we've all, we're all in agreement. Boeing needs a new narrowbody. Um, the company is in close to denial on this. Uh, but, you know, having a problem that you know, you've taken five years to certificate what should have been a simple derivative, um, that sort of all, uh, talks to the, the engineering challenges that, that that just mount up on Boeing, many of which are self-inflicted. Richard, your your sense on on where we are? You were extensively uh, quoted uh, worldwide uh, in the wake of this accident. What's what's your sense on where we are, where we're going on both of these? You know, just echo Ron. Of course, we we don't know, but um, it's unlikely to be any kind of design issue because of the well, huge numbers of jets and trillions of hours of experience, practically. Um, and also, jets don't frankly do this on their own. I mean, I'm, I'm really scratching my head to think of any president of an aircraft going straight down like this. Um, you know, the best examples, unfortunately, involve pilot suicide. We have no idea, however, of course, just to emphasize, and we'll, we'll wait and see. Sounds like they got the second black box. That, that's certainly good news. Um, it, per Sash's point, yes, there is a lamentable tendency to politicize things, even though they've done a very good job making China much safer over the past, you know, 20, 30 years than they had in the past. And that's good. But still, there is a politicization aspect. So you could easily see it roped in with all the other issues we discussed before. Uh, getting to the issue of the next 10, I think there's an awful lot at stake here. 
um, I, slight variation on what Sash says. Do they need a new narrow body? They need a new large narrow body. They don't need a max eight replacement. It is absolutely fine. Max nine is doing good too. But that middle market, Boeing has been saying, oh, we can, we can get in with the you know, max 10. We're going to be able to hold our own. You just wait and see, you know, get it certified. Obviously, the Delta announcement the previous week was good news for them. But if they just don't have a product in that space, that middle market space for five years, just as Airbus finally gets its act together with A321XLR and LR output out of Hamburg, and they start going nuts and doing four or 500 of those things a year. Remember, the backlog is over 3,000 jets, um, that, or I think the total order book is, is oh God, it's, it's, what is it, 4,000, something like that? It's, it's in that zone then Airbus simply runs away with that market. And yes, either they need a new jet or at the very least, they need to get this thing certified within the necessary time frame. And if they don't, that just means another step towards marginalization in the commercial jetliner business. This is, this is a little frustrating because I, I think per Sasha's point, yes, they are in a profound state of denial. The middle market is the most important, the only really, really super healthy part of the industry that's you know that, that's healthy. And if Boeing just is completely absent from a for a, the, most of this decade, that would be catastrophic. Uh, and uh, just before we uh, wrap up, uh, Richard um, or and, and Sasha or uh, Ron, uh, whoever wants to play into this, uh, what we see from Omicron and what's it likely to mean for traffic. Um, you know, economic impact or anything else. I mean, I think folks, uh, you know, even my most ardent mask wearing uh, friends are not wearing masks uh, anymore. Uh, and yet there's another wave uh, that's coming. Maybe it makes sense for Sash to start us off because he is uh, right. I mean, whether it's been in Scotland or the UK, it's sort of been, you know, they've been ahead of this power curve and whatever happens in Europe tends to come to the United States uh, where we are a little bit under vaccinated. I know I ask this question every week, uh, but you know, the reality is, you know, the BA.2 or BA.2 or whatever you call it is 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 rising. Take it away, Sash, Ron, and then Richard, uh, wrap us up as our resident bull. Um, yeah, OK. Uh, here in Europe, mask mandates are falling very, very rapidly indeed. Um, and the number of people wearing them uh, is reducing. Interestingly, airlines are, are, are beginning to... Um, to waive the requirement to wear masks on board, um, which and given that I think we always thought they would be the last ones to do it because there tends to be a, a regulatory reason at one end of the route or the other. That's quite significant. There's still um, uh, requirements to, uh, to you know to do various forms if you're flying internationally in Europe, but even those are uh, are dropping out at the moment. So the assumption in Europe, particularly given the fact that summer is starting is that this becomes a, 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 low, um, a low seriousness endemic problem rather than a high seriousness pandemic problem. Um, I, you know, we may not see for a couple of months, but I, it, you know, politicians have been very, very keen to, uh, to you know, reduce the, the whole coronavirus um, uh, regulations. And at the moment, they don't have their eyes on the ball because they're all thinking about Ukraine. Uh, Richard, uh, bring us home. As always, the disease gets a vote too. And so far, it just doesn't look menacing. Uh, and as my colleagues say, restrictions are falling. 
obviously uh, another variant or resurgence of some sort uh, could certainly do the trick. But right now, I, I'm still your resident bull. Everybody, thanks very much uh, for spending so much time with us. Really appreciate it every week. Uh, and uh, hope you guys have uh, a great day, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Yeah, great to be here, Vago. Wouldn't be a weekend without it. Yeah, always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Vago. Great to be here. And before we go, um, on uh, behalf of myself and uh, all of our participants and our team here, the deepest condolences to all those who lost their loved ones uh, on the China uh, Eastern flight that crashed. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.